Well, good morning, church. Open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two. Well, I'm going to start off the sermon today with a little riddle. So we'll see if you can figure out the answer by the end. There's something that we all need to live, yet we are born without it. God has designed us to properly function with this, but most never receive it. This is something you cannot earn, you cannot buy, you can only receive it as a gift. What is that, do you think? It's wisdom. It's wisdom. All of us need God's wisdom to live, but because of our sinful natures, we are born without God's wisdom. God has designed us to relate to him with his wisdom, but instead humanity functions as broken fools. God's wisdom cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It cannot be gained through personal effort. It's only a gift from him. It comes as a gift from God. That's what our text this morning teaches us, and we're going to see this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And as we normally do, we want to think about the context of where we're at. Here, this is a letter that Paul has written to the, the church that is in Corinth. And remember in chapter 1, he contrasted cross-centered preaching with man-centered preaching. And in verse 17 through 31, he gave reasons why we should preach Christ and his cross. Remember those four reasons? It was so we can display God's power, his wisdom, that he is the one who divinely calls, and the glory of God. And so in that first chapter, we ask the question, why? Why should we preach Christ and his cross? And then last week, we looked at chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and we asked the question, what? What is cross-centered preaching? What does God call us to do as we gather around his word and proclaim his word? So the question was, what? What is cross-centered preaching? We said that cross-centered preaching is is, is God speaking his word about Christ's redemptive work through a spirit-empowered man so your faith would depend on him alone. So chapter 1 gave us the reasons why, and here we find out the method of preaching. It's, it's the preaching of the cross through his word about the redemptive work of Christ. And then this week, we're going to look at the the content of preaching. In fact, that's what actually the rest of this chapter deals with. Verses 6 through 16 deal with the content of our preaching. And the question here is, how? How can we know and understand God's wisdom? You see, the content of our preaching is to be the wisdom of God. So if we're to preach the wisdom of God, the question is, how do we know what God's wisdom is? How can we understand God's wisdom? And here's the answer. The answer is that God's wisdom is made known through revelation, illumination, and discernment. So we're actually going to take two weeks to go through this. And this week, we're just going to look at revelation. God's wisdom is made known through revelation, illumination, and discernment. So if you're writing notes down, I don't have a PowerPoint today. You're just going to have to listen, and I'll try to speak slowly when it's time to write something down. But the question I want to answer is, how can we know and understand God's wisdom? So if you're writing something down, write that down. How can we know and understand the wisdom of God? And the answer is this. God's wisdom is made known through revelation, illumination, and discernment. In fact, let me just give you a little overview to see this. Look down in verse 6. and From verse 6 down through verse 10, we find out that, that wisdom is revealed through divine revelation. In fact, look at verse 10. He says, these things God has revealed, his wisdom is revealed 
to us through the Spirit. So that's divine revelation. And then verses 11 and 12, we see that we have the indwelling of the Spirit, verse 12 at the end, that we might understand, perceive the things freely given us by God. That's illumination. And then in verses 13 through 16, we see that we're taught about spiritual discernment. And so this morning, our focus is going to be on God revealing to us his wisdom through divine revelation. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're just going to read verses 6 through 10. Would you stand for me, with me? Would you stand with me for the preaching of God's word? 1 Corinthians 2, and we're going to go from verse 6 down through the first part of verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we already prayed and asked for you to speak to us so that you may be glorified, so that we may know you, so that we may obey you. And Lord, I pray that you will empower this service by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One time when I was a boy, I went into a field with my friends, and we played in this field and had a lot of vegetables. And so sometimes we would, you know, take a little snack here and there. One time I saw this little particular uh, crop, and it was a red hot pepper. Now, I don't remember if I'd ever had one. I don't think I had, but I definitely didn't know what that thing would do if I put it in my mouth. And so as a curious little boy, I took that red pepper, a hot pepper, and I put it in my mouth, and I decided to eat it. And my mouth went on fire. And before I did that, I didn't know the effects of it. I didn't, you know, think through what was going to happen. I did, it just was something that was there. And I thought, well, I'll put this in my mouth and see what it tastes like. And I ran inside and I cried. And, you know, my punishment ended up being the, he- the hot red pepper, right? And so and I didn't get in trouble for stealing the fruit out there, or the vegetables, I mean, out there. I think uh, a pepper is a, fr- a vegetable, right? Okay. But my decision to eat that hot pepper was foolish, really what it came down to was I had some knowledge that was wrong, and, uh, and so therefore I apply, applied that raw knowledge in a wrong way. And last time, we, or a couple weeks ago, we learned that wisdom is knowledge applied. And so in my case, in that situation, I actually had wrong knowledge. I didn't know what this thing was, and therefore I applied it, and I was, made a foolish decision. Then when I was in college, we were in a dorm room with a bunch of guys. That's dangerous. And uh, we had a bunch of hot peppers, and they dared me to eat the hot peppers. Actually, they said it was some type of remedy, but that didn't work, actually. And so I decided to uh, put those hot peppers in my mouth. Now, at that moment, I actually knew what was going to happen. And I knew that if I put it in my mouth, it would cause a lot of pain. But I did it anyways, because I was a dumb college guy. And, uh, And the truth is, because I just didn't want to look like an idiot, right? I want to be cool. I want to fit in. And so I followed the desires of my own heart, and therefore I acted like a fool. And so again, wisdom is knowledge applied. In that case, I had the knowledge, but I rejected it to follow my own sinful desires. And sometimes when you read through a text like 1 Corinthians, you can see God saying, you know, don't follow the wisdom of the world. And you might think, well, God's opposed to wisdom. Well, God's not opposed to wisdom. God is opposed to foolish wisdom. That is wisdom that is either based upon something that's not true or that's following someone's sinful desires. And that's the wisdom of this 
world. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, that claiming to be wise, the world claims to be wise, but they became fools. So there is a wisdom that is foolish. And that's why we need God's wisdom. And to have God's wisdom is, is to know the truth from God, about God, and then to have the ability to understand that truth and apply that truth for my life. And so that is wisdom. It's the knowledge of God with the understanding of, what that, of who God is and the ability to apply that to my life. And the only way to have the knowledge of God, we're going to learn this morning, is through divine revelation found in, for us, found in the word of God. And that's what the Bible here is teaching us, that God has given us a gift, and that is the revelation of himself. And for us, it's found in the written word of God. And the Spirit of God has given us this wonderful gift. In fact, look down in chapter 2 and notice here the knowledge of God. The wisdom of God is based upon the knowledge of God. If you look at verse 1, we saw this last week, that he was proclaiming what? the testimony of God. The testimony of God is who God is. It's what God's done. It's God's testimony about himself. So that's the knowledge of God. And then look down in verse 10. We can see a couple other verses, but these are kind of the primary ones. Verse 10, this knowledge deals with, you can see it at the end, the depths of God. Those are the deep things of God. And then verse 11, these truths are the thoughts of God. So here we're talking about the knowledge of God. So when I'm teaching or preaching or someone else is teaching or preaching, we're to be communicating the knowledge of God and then to help people know how to apply that. That's called God's wisdom. In these two chapters here, in chapter one and two, you see the wisdom of God everywhere. If these two chapters were a street that you were to drive down, it would be like Cochrane Street. And every 500 feet, you would hit another stoplight, right? And if, if the wisdom of God was a stoplight, it'd be like, you just keep hitting those. It's everywhere. Every time you go down the street, it's there. If you go through this chapter, every time you go through this chapter, every other verse, you see the wisdom of God. It's everywhere you go. In fact, 28 times in the New Testament, Paul uses the word wisdom, but 15 of those are here in these two chapters. And on top of that, if you were to study the word wise, you would see that he uses the word, the adjective wise, 10 times in the first three chapters. And the point he's making here in these two chapters is we need the wisdom of God. And the need for the wisdom of God cannot be overstated. In fact, we could look at all the instances of the wisdom of God, but we're not going to do that. Just look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look down in verse number 21. And just to highlight the need we have for God's wisdom, in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, he says, he writes, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So in other words, the world in its own wisdom cannot know God. The world cannot find God through their own, their own efforts. Most people think that they can find God just by looking within themselves or, or maybe studying some type of religion or philosophy. And they can find God on their own. But this, this text of scripture lets us know that God's wisdom says that you, know, you can't find him in your own wisdom. God is only found when he decides to reveal himself to us. And so as a church, it is so important that we know the wisdom of God. It's so important that we believe the wisdom of God, that we seek the wisdom, wisdom of God. And in here in this text, it's so important that what we preach is God's wisdom. We're not looking to outside resources and other areas to, to, for information to preach. We're looking to his word and preaching his wisdom. In fact, you can see this in verse 6. You can see that he's saying, we are imparting, we are speaking God's wisdom. Look at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. The word impart simply means to speak. This deals with what we communicate about God. 
It involves the content of what we're declaring when we say we're speaking on behalf of God. In fact, you can see this down in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, but we impart, we speak a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And then look down in verse 13. Again, he says, and we impart, we speak this, that's wisdom, in words. So again, how can we know? How can we understand the wisdom of God? Well, it's found in through divine revelation. And notice in verse 6 there where he says, yet among the mature. Who is this? Who are the mature? Well, the mature are not, not a class or a category. It's not like the, the mature people sit on this side of the room in the church and the immature people sit on this side of the room. This isn't some kind of categorization of Christians. This is a term that speaks to all Christians, but this is a call for all Christians to have maturity, to, to grow up, to, to, to listen to God's word with the desire to gain the knowledge of God, to gain God's wisdom, to know God's wisdom. It's a call for us to, to be mature. The question, therefore, we must ask ourselves when we come to times of preaching like this or teaching or a Bible study, the question we must ask is, do I want God's wisdom? Like, why do I listen to the teaching and preaching of God's word? What am I wanting to get out of it? Like, most people want to just live life and get a be- have a better life on this earth. Many people go to churches, and they're, they're trying to figure out, like, how can I hear something that's going to encourage me, or how can I get something from God so that my life is better on this earth? But what this text is saying here is that we actually come to church and we say, God, I want to know what you have to say, who you are, and I want to know your wisdom, and I want you to prepare me for the life to come. And so the question we must ask is, do I desire the wisdom of God? Is God's wisdom the most important thing in my life? Like we could go to the Proverbs and we could read Proverbs, like Proverbs 16, 16, 16 that says, how much better to get wisdom than gold, right? If I had a chunk of gold up here and I, and I set it down on the stage and I said, who wants this gold? How many people would desire that gold? There we go, I got to raise a hand back there, okay? I think probably everyone in here would probably want that, wouldn't they? And here we have something that's far better than gold. It's God's wisdom found in the word of God. So how much do we desire God's wisdom? And so he says in verse 6, among the mature, in other words, we need to be mature to grow in the wisdom of God. We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And again, he contrasts God's wisdom with the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of this age. What's he talking about there? What is the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age? Well, this age and the rulers of this age represent the beliefs and philosophies of human leaders who reject the wisdom of God. In, In every generation, every culture, every society has worldly belief systems. And their belief systems are based upon the wisdom of men. And they're based upon the earthly values of men, whether they be religious systems or philosophical systems or, or whatever type of system is out there, cultural, uh, cultural normalities, cultural um, trends, or whatever it is, people have their beliefs based upon their own wisdom and the wisdom of man and what man values. And what is it that man values? Well, he values himself. He values this world I like how one author describes the wisdom of the world. Paul Tripp wrote that the belief systems of this world are systems that seek redemption without a redeemer. So think about that. The the systems of this world seek redemption without a redeemer. See, everybody has some sort of system they follow. Like you, you fit into something, maybe a couple of some things, but you fit into something and you're seeking redemption. What he's saying is that people seek redemption, but if they're not following Christ, they have a hopeless redeemer. Some seek redemption through religion, through social involvement, through a desire for culture, cultural affirmation, right? They go on the internet or they go into a class and they want people to affirm what they believe or through political activism, 
And no matter what people follow, their, their purpose, their life is all wrapped up in a system that promises hope, that promises deliverance. But, but their system and their hope for redemption can't happen. It's hopeless. Think about it this way. Think about a person who has a very difficult day. They have a lot of sorrow in their life, and so they go home at night, and they get out the bottle, and they sit down, and they begin to drink. Or, or they get out a joint, and they begin to smoke. Or they take some drugs and pop some drugs. And redemption for them is found in that substance, in those substances. But that redeemer that they're looking for can never truly give them freedom. Some people are consumed with politics or with cultural reformation, right? They're, 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 they're obsessed with the next election cycle. They're obsessed with, with this next leader who, who's, gonna, who's gonna change things. If, if we just get this person in office, then things truly will change. They look for redemption in those leaders who promise a better future. But you know what's funny? It's not really funny, but what's interesting is those leaders never really do deliver. And even if they do deliver something, someone else comes back around and messes the whole thing up again. And even if they are able to affect some sort of change, it's only momentary. Some people pursue redemption through good things, not bad things, like maybe good things like exercise, right? They're, they're obsessed in their life with exercise. Everything's about, you know, eating this and, and exercising in this way and going to the gym and doing this, and those aren't bad things, but that becomes their life. And they, they seek redemption through it and joy through it and purpose through it. But soon their body will fail and soon they will die. Some seek hope and redemption in a job and, or in a marriage. And they hope that thing, that event will give them some type of joy. But even that will only be for a moment. Some look for redemption in their religion. They, they look for redemption in their, their rituals and in, in their own efforts. And they think they can redeem themselves if they're just good enough, they just, just try hard enough. But their religion and their self-effort cannot save no matter how hard they try. You can never be good enough. And so the point is the world preaches redemption, but it has hopeless redeemers. In fact, if you look down in verse six, you can see that the wisdom of this age with the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. That's what he says. The wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And the idea of doomed to pass away is to bring it to an end. This is a, this is a passive voice. So this is God bringing their wisdom and those philosophies and those leaders to an end. It's God saying, this might seem popular right now. This might seem what the, the world says is, is what is right. It might seem like the way to go right now. People might proclaim this as, as smart and sensible, but someday I will show how foolish it really is. I will bring it to an end, God says. And the sad reality is that the wisdom of the world leads to the doom of eternal hell those who trust themselves and live for themselves are doomed to eternity by themselves. I think of the story of, of the man who shouted out his worldly wisdom in Luke chapter 12. If you remember that story, there's a man that was in a crowd and Jesus was walking by. And this man yelled out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So, so think about that situation. Here's Jesus walking in, in some, some, down some kind of road, and this man yells out, maybe his brother is right nearby, who knows? I mean, I don't know how Jesus would solve it unless his brother was nearby, but it's like, hey, my brother is not sharing the money with me. So here this man has this, this worldly philosophy, he has this, these worldly values. I mean, evidently, uh, someone died, his parents died, or somehow there was some type of death in the family. That's why they're receiving some type of inheritance. So, so you would think with a death like that, that it would put life in perspective, right? I mean, my, my parents have died and I'm receiving, the, my brother received an inheritance. So what really matters in life? Is it the money? I mean, when, when you have a death in your life, you realize life is short, right? And so Jesus 
pointed out that this man was following the wisdom of his age. And what was that wisdom? His wisdom, the wisdom of this age, was that life was about what was happening right now. And this, this man was trusting in his riches to satisfy. He, he considered his life to be defined by the possessions that he owned. He, he, he desired money and he desired things to redeem his life, to make his life worth something. So Jesus replied back. Remember what he replied back? He says, watch out for covetousness. Jesus was saying that you've bought into the world's philosophy. You've bought into the idea that if I gain more than I, then I have more value. You've bought into the philosophy that, but life is about what I have, that, that I need to get more to be happier, to enjoy this world. And so he says, watch out for covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And that right there, my friends, is the philosophy of our world, isn't it? That, that your life consists in what you do and what you have. The more you have, the more valuable you have. The better position, the more value that you have. And so Jesus told a story about a rich man. And he said, this man said, I'm going to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to store my grain and my goods in those barns. And then I'm going to sit back and I'm going to say, my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And he was saying, I have my plans. This wisdom that this rich man in this story is the wisdom of this world. And Jesus was pointing out the folly of the wisdom of this world. And I think that probably this rich man represents many Americans. And unfortunately, many times our hearts, goes down, our hearts go down this path as well. The world thinks my life is about building my business, getting my vacations, making my memories with my kids. It's about eating and drinking and are any of those things wrong? Are any of those things, those things bad? No, he's not saying, but that is not the purpose of your life. Your life does not just consist of those things. Because friends, that life, this life will soon be passed. And the only things that matter is what's done for Christ. As the saying goes, what's done for Christ will last. We only have a short life. And we are to live this life for Christ and to prepare for the next. And that's why this man was sitting there thinking about his future, thinking about all the things he's going to do. God said, fool, senseless one, empty head. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And as this man was thinking about his future and all the wonderful things he had planned, God had a different future in store. And that man breathed his last and he went into an eternity separated from God. At that moment, his worldly wisdom was found to be foolishness. His soul went to hell his possessions went to another person. And friend, that's going to be the end of every person without Christ. How many people in this world view their life in that way? I wonder even for us, how many of us are tempted to think that way? I think it's probably a good exercise for us to ask ourselves, am I thinking like the world? Do I have those type of values? Am I following the wisdom that is doomed to pass away? Am I, am I living according to my wisdom? And in verse 7, we see this contrast between, God, between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. So look at verse 7. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The word secret in some translations is mystery. If you're a student of God's word, that might be more familiar with uh, to you. 
The, the secret, the mystery, though, is speaking of a truth not previously known, but God has made it known by divine revelation. So it's a truth that was not previously known, but God has now revealed it to us through revelation. I have my Bible up here, and before I got up here, I went in my wife's purse, and I pulled out a piece of paper, and I put it in my Bible. So this piece of paper is hidden in here. Now, you don't know what that piece of paper is. You, I don't think you could probably guess what that piece of paper is. is it money? No, it's not money. Good, good guess. That was a good try. And, and the truth is, the point is, it's, it's concealed, it's hidden from you until I pull it out and I reveal it to you. And it's actually a gospel tract, a forgiven tract that I wrote many years ago, 2005. And, and the point is, is that that was not known to you until I revealed it. And that's what he's talking about here, that God had something in the past that was hidden, but now is revealed. It's the truth about Christ and what he's done for us. And so in the past, that, that truth was hidden from many, but now he has revealed it. In fact, look at, go back to Romans chapter 16. It should be one page over. Look in Romans chapter 16, and I want to demonstrate this to you in another text of scripture, Romans chapter 16, verse 25. And we can see the same type of mystery that was hidden, but now is revealed. So look at Romans chapter 16, verse 25. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, then notice what he's going to say, according to my gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died and rose again. And he says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, that's calling people to believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. And then he says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. So it was, it was a mystery that was hidden, but verse 26 has now been disclosed. And how has it been disclosed? Through the prophetic writings, through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. So, so the gospel at one point was was hidden, but now it's revealed, and it's through what? It's through the scriptures, the, the writings, and that's through, that's God revealing himself in the word of God. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8, and that's what we see in this text of scripture as well. The hidden wisdom of God is revealed in the word of God, in the holy scriptures. And this wisdom deals with the truth of the gospel, that Jesus came to live and die to redeem us from our sins. In fact, I'm going to do a little quiz with you. There are four key verses in chapter 1 and 2 that make it very clear that the wisdom of God is the death of Jesus Christ, the uh, crucifixion, the redemption of Christ on the cross. So let's see if you can think of some of those. What do you think in chapter 1? What do you think is one of those verses that are the key verses that tell us that's the wisdom of God is about the gospel or about the, the death of Christ on the cross? You got verse 17 where he says, I didn't come to, to baptize, I came to do what? I came to preach, and we learn that it's the preaching of the cross, the gospel, or preach the gospel. He's, verse 18 is another one where he says, I came to preach the word of the cross. And here what he's doing is he's contrasting the world's wisdom with God's wisdom. In verse 23, again, he does this contrast. We don't preach the world's wisdom. We preach God's wisdom, which is what? We preach Christ crucified. And then down in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. So here, again, he's talking about the wisdom of God. So this secret wisdom, this mystery is about God's wisdom, but it's specifically about Christ and his redemptive work for us on the cross. In fact, you can see this as well in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Here he, he hones in on this truth. He says in verse 8, none of these of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, 
they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who are those rulers in verse 8? Well, the Romans, Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, those rulers who took part in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So, so God's wisdom is about, is about Christ and his death for us. Then notice in verse 7 that it's the wisdom of God found in the person and work of Christ that God decreed before the ages for our glory. Look at that. Now think about that. What does that mean? God decreed the wisdom of God found in the person and work of Christ before the ages for our glory. That's speaking about the fact that before time, God decreed that Christ would die within time so he could save us for the rest of time. Let me say that one more time. Before time, God decreed that Christ would die within time so we could be saved for the rest of time. You see, verse 7 there is declaring God to be the sovereign one. And in his wisdom, he actually planned the death of Christ before the creation of this world. See, God's plan to create the world, to make man in his image, and then to have Christ come as the sacrificial substitute was plan A. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't like plan A was create a world, man made in my image, and then everyone lives a perfect life. Actually, God's plan from before creation was to send Christ to die. This is amazing to consider. Jesus' cross was always to be the center point for humanity and for history. God's wisdom planned for the cross to define our very existence. This wasn't an afterthought. This wasn't like, oh, what should we do? People have messed up. Oh, let's send the Savior. No, this was God's plan. God's in God's wisdom, he planned for the cross to define our very existence and then to enable us to rightly relate to God in time and for eternity. So we've thought a lot about the cross the past couple of weeks. And I want us just to really meditate on that. Meditate on the cross. Think about the cross. Think about the centrality of the cross to history and to humanity and really the, the centrality of the cross to your own life. I mean, the cross really defines us. It defines God. Think about that. The cross defines God. It reveals God to be the holy one, to be the righteous judge. I mean, when Jesus was on that cross dying, God the Father was executing the wrath uh, uh, for sin upon Jesus. So it shows that God is righteous. He must punish sin and of course, Jesus wasn't dying for his own sin because he didn't sin. He was the Holy One. He was dying for our sin. But also, the cross defines God as a God of love. I mean, the cross tells me that God loves me. Why? He sent his son to die in my place. So the cross defines who God is. The cross defines who you are. It exposes us exposes me, exposes you as sinful, exposes us as ones who are worthy of death. I mean, Jesus died on the cross, not because he had to. He died on the cross because you deserve to die. He died in your place. Like he didn't deserve to be there. And therefore it shows that we are sinful. We are worthy of death. We deserve eternal separation from God. The cross defines Christ, the Christ or defines Christ as the righteous substitute. It defines him as the Lamb of God, the Savior, the Redeemer. The cross of Christ reveals that he is the resurrection and life because he rose again. He didn't stay dead. It, it defines him as the Lord because he conquered death and sin and Satan. And for those who repent and believe, the cross defines you as saved, as, as forgiven as a child of God, as a saint. And the cross even defines your purpose, that you are not to live life for yourself, but for him who died for you and rose again. The cross defines your destiny as glory, and the cross work of Jesus Christ 
prepares you for glory. In fact, you can see that in verse 8. Look at the end of verse 8. He writes, verse 7, that God decreed before the ages for our glory. Notice those three words, for our glory. What does that mean? Well, our glory doesn't mean we deserve glory. It means, it means it speaks of the glory of Christ and the glory that he has shared with us. Remember, after Christ's death, he was buried. He rose again. His body was glorified. He went to glory. That's why in verse 9, he's called the Lord of glory. So our glory in, in verse 8 is the glory he shares with us. It's the glory of, of receiving a resurrected body. It's the glory of living in a resurrected world. It's the glory of, of his inheritance, of the blessings of his presence. So it's a glory he will share with us someday, but it's also a glory he shares with us now. For 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that we, we behold in a glass, we behold in the revelation of God, the glory of Jesus, and therefore he changes us from one degree of glory to another by the spirit of God. In other words, he is now sharing his glory with us. What does that mean? He's making us more like Jesus Christ. And so before time, it was decreed that Jesus would come and he would die for us and he did it for our glory. That means so that we could become more like Christ and that we could share his glory for eternity. And this then, church, gives us great hope. It gives us great hope. You see, as we look around at our world, and we might be tempted to think that our world is in chaos. The, the, the prices of gas are going up. There's a new war taking place. There's another bomb dropped over in this place. And we can look at our world and think, is, is, is everything out of control? But then when we look back on the cross work of Jesus Christ, we recognize that, no, it's not out of control. Actually, God planned that, and he's planning this, and our lives are orchestrated by the sovereign God. God has planned the whole thing out. And his work now is on purpose in my life to share the glory of Christ with me, to make me more like Christ, and then to prepare me to live forever with Christ and in his glory. And so then the question is, if that's, if that's what he's doing, what do we need in our life? What is the most important thing in our life? It is what? It is the wisdom of God. If the wisdom of God prepares me for the next life, if the wisdom of God changes me in this life, then we need to sit under the teaching of God's wisdom. So the importance of listening to God's wisdom is that we are hearing his word and it's transforming us. In verse eight, he recalls the, the rulers who are crucified, or sorry, who crucified Jesus. And he uses them as an illustration of how God's wisdom can only be known through revelation. Look at verse 8. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't perceive what was taking place. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you think about Pilate. You think about the Sanhedrin. If they had known the whole story, if they had truly perceived what was taking place, that Jesus was going to rise again, if they had to perceive that he is the final judge, it's saying here, it's, it's, it's possible they might have done something else, but they couldn't see it. They didn't perceive that. Why didn't they perceive that? Well, because they were spiritually blind. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen actually pointed to some of these leaders, and he said, he said actually, you are stiff-necked, and you're resisting the Holy Spirit. In other words, within their own hearts, they had hardened their hearts to God. And why didn't they see? It was because they were committed to their way. They had a, hearts that were blinded. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes that Satan blinds the minds of them which believe not. So there's this work of deception going on in this world. And so that's what his point is here, is that it's impossible for someone to know God, to find God, to understand the truths of God on his own. 
You must have God do a work in your life. God must reveal himself to you. And so look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, you can't know God God's wisdom by just seeing or just hearing or just imagining. A lot of times people look at this verse and they they think it's speaking of heaven. It's actually speaking of God's wisdom and that God is the one who gives it and you can't find it on your own. You can't find it by by looking. You can't find it by just listening. You can't find it by by imagining. Like the, the wisdom of God could not be found, uh, man could not find God's wisdom on his own. God's wisdom can't be found found in the minds of great philosophers. It's not discovered through scientific observation. It's not found as someone meditates and empties their mind. It's not found if you go on a long trip and you seek to go to maybe Israel or you go to some kind of spiritual place and you want to find God. You can't find God on your own. That's his whole point here. God must reveal himself to you. No person finds God without God revealing himself to them. And who are those people that God has revealed himself to? Well, at the end of verse 9, he says, For those who love him, it's those who have his spirit, those who are his. That's why he says in verse 10, These things, the wisdom of God, these things God has revealed to us, through his spirit. So how can we know the wisdom of God? God has revealed himself by his spirit's work. So then the next question is, well, what's his spirit's work? What's the spirit's work in our life? What's he doing? Well, he's revealed himself through his spirit. Remember that we have, that what we're reading here is 1 Corinthians, a letter from Paul to the church. But it's not just an ordinary letter. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed to Paul who God is, what God was doing, and and the Holy Spirit moved in Paul's mind in such a way that what Paul wrote down was the revelation of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all the writings of God, all scripture is breathed out by God. That is the Holy Spirit moved in such a way upon the prophets and the apostles that God's revelation of himself was written down. So what we have right here is God's written revelation. So in fact, look down in verse 13. We'll look at this more next week. But in verse 13, we say, it says, we impart this wisdom in words. So we're speaking this in words. In other words, God has his revelation in words. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You know that verse? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God is infinite. He's never had a beginning, never will have an ending. God just is. I mean, to, to fathom who God is is impossible for the human mind. Like we have finite minds. He is an infinite, majestic being. And so he says that there's, there's some things, not just some things, there's many things about God that are secret, that you cannot know because you're a human. Like you, you don't have the mind that can comprehend those things. But there are things that he does reveal to us. The secret, thought, things, th- secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The only way that we can know God is if God reveals himself. And so in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, what he's saying is God has revealed himself. There are secret things you don't know about God. The things he has revealed are found in the law, found in the word of God, and they're for a purpose. And the purpose is for his children to trust him, to know him, to obey him. So God's revelation is for who? Well, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it belongs to us and to our children. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says it belongs to those who love 
him. And so therefore, what does God want us to do? God has given us a great gift right here, and it is the word of God. It's the written revelation of God. How can you know God? You can't know God unless he reveals himself to you. Well, are you going to be walking home one day and see some lightning and hear a voice from God? No. How has God revealed himself in our world today? It is through the written revelation of the scriptures. So what does God want us to do with it? Well, look back in verse 5. The very end of the verse, he wants us to believe it so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He wants us to, to look in his word, to see his wisdom, and believe it's true and depend upon his wisdom. In verse 6, he calls us to be mature. That means we must grow by it. That means that there should be this progressive growth in our life as we come and, and want to glean from his word and know his wisdom. And we can be able to we can look back on our life and say, This, this is how God is growing me spiritually. Verse 7, the very end of verse 7, it prepares us for glory prepares us for glory. God's wisdom should be transforming us. It should transform us now and prepare us for what is to come. The wisdom of God is for those who love him, which means what? This is our way, one way, but one of the key ways for us to express our love for him. Growing in wisdom is, is not a, a boring ritual of coming to a class or going to a Bible study or coming to listen to God's word being preached. It's actually how we pursue him, how we love him. So God has given us a great gift. And probably the best question we can ask in here this morning is what are you doing, church, with the gift of God's revelation? There might be someone in here this morning where you listen to all this and you go, redemption, what? You know, revelation, what? I mean, what is all this? Maybe, maybe you're, you don't really, I guess, care that much about this. And the reality is, if, if, if that is you in here, that's because you're not understanding the wisdom of God. But may, maybe, maybe there has been times where you felt convicted. Maybe you felt bad about something. You felt like you were doing some things wrong. Maybe you, you had a sense that something was not right in your life. And I would say this, that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, telling you that you're going the wrong direction. And what God wants you to know is his wisdom, and, and that is this, and that is that he has provided Jesus to save you from yourself, to save you from the, the doom of this world's wisdom. And so don't resist I think maybe maybe a teen or a teenager, maybe you've been going to church here your whole life and you, you've known it inside your soul. You're like, I know that there's something wrong. I know I'm not following the Lord. And you just keep resisting him. You're rejecting him. And so the call for us today is to submit to him, to confess your sin to him, to call upon him to save. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the, righteous, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to God. In other words, forsake your own wisdom and the wisdom of this world and pursue the wisdom of God, which is what? That he may have compassion on you and forgive you abundantly. Let's pray.